I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of some poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm happily joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Mahyar Antazari, who teaches Persian language and culture here at Penn with a focus often on Iranian film affiliated with the Middle East Center and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, who has completed a book-length study of transnationalism and representations of Afghans in Iranian cinema, and who has won a slew of distinguished fellowships, including a Fulbright and a Critical Language Scholarship, which took him to Dushanbe, Tajikistan. And by Leonard Schwartz, whose many, many books include A Message Back and Other Fuhrers, A Library of Seven Readings, Language's Responsibility, and The New Babel Toward a Poetics of the Mideast Crises, Plural Crises, who famously hosts the radio program Cross-Cultural Poetics with recordings archived at Penn Sound up through episode number 373. My gosh, what an epic enterprise that's been. When did you start? What year? I can't remember anymore. It's too long. Maybe 2004, but I'm guessing. Episodes 1 through 373 at Penn Sound, whose most recent book is the forthcoming uh, Salamander, a Bestiary from Chax Press, a collaboration with the painter Simon Carr, who teaches at Evergreen State College in Tacoma, Washington, and who next semester, I took a peek, will be teaching a course on eco-poetics called Countertextual Ecologies. And Feruza Kashani Sabet, a novelist and scholar whose novel Martyrdom Street is soon to be joined by a second book-length fiction tentatively titled Ghosts of Gilan. Gilan, did I say that right? Whose scholarly books include the award-winning Conceiving Citizens, Women, and The Politics of Motherhood, and a very influential earlier work, Frontier Fictions, Shaping the Iranian Nation, which explores how border disputes form the nation and affect cultural production, whose current book project bears the working title Tales of Trespassing, Borderland, Histories of Iran, Iraq, and the Persian Gulf, and who for the past decade has directed Penn's Middle East Center, which I'm glad to say has been a number of times a great partner to us here at the Kelly Writers House. Feruza, it's an honor to have you join us here. Thank you so much. It's very exciting to be here. Yeah, and we got you into the studio, and this means you'll come back again and record some of your work. We'd be honored. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Thanks for coming. And Leonard, welcome back to the Writers House. You're on the East Coast swing that you sometimes make. Indeed, an easy train ride from uh, New York to Philadelphia. And I'm going to guess this is like the fourth visit to the Writer's House over the years, maybe? At least the fourth once to read at Kelly Writers and Mm -hmm. several times to be on your program, which is always an honor and and a terrific experience. cross-cultural poetics is amazing. Thank you, Al. Yeah, you just keep doing it. What's it? Every... Two weeks? I keep doing it once a week, but I wouldn't keep doing it if I didn't have the support of Kelly Writer's House. I have to tell you that it's great that it's aired out in Washington State, but 
the real home for it, I always feel, is right here. Well, that's really nice. I love trading yeah. compliments. Uh, <laughs> so it's uh, Olympia, Washington radio station, but you record it, and then you send it to us, and we make it available to everybody. That's else. right. Okay. Machiar, you are here. You're here actually pretty often these days. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but this is the first time here for Poem Talk. And yeah. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for oh, having so me. so great. You're, you're really terrific. So this is a great crew, and we're all here today to talk about three poems by Fatima Shams, all of which appear in her book, when it, which is the English title of which is When They Broke Down the Door, published in 2016 by Mage Publishers with English translations by the eminent Persian language translator Dick Davis. Fatima writes her verse in Persian, and this, I believe, is her first book translated into English. Am I right about that? Do either of you know? I think it is. I believe so. Yeah. I, Mr. Davis makes that statement, I believe. Okay, yeah. good. Thank you. During Dick Davis's recent visit to the writer's house, to this very building, we were able to get the two of them into this studio where they recorded a number of poems for her pen sound page. And our three poems, W for War 1, Things to Say, and Prosecution, were among those recorded. So here now is Dick Davis performing his English translations of them, each followed by the original Persian performed by the poet herself. W for War 1. I wasn't a helmet. I wasn't a boot. I wasn't a mortar shell. I wasn't a tank. I wasn't a commander, I wasn't a soldier, a minefield, barbed wire, an embankment, not me. I was a bit of a photograph, small, with no corners, in the left-hand breast pocket, over the smashed heart of a conscript. G. Mesle Jang, Kolahud Nabudam, Putin Nabudam, Khompare Nabudam, تانک نبودم من فرمانده نبودم سرباز نبودم میدان مین سیم خاردار خاکریز نبودم من یک تکه عکس کوچک و بیگوشه بودم در جیب سمت چپ از بالا روی خون گرم قلب متلاشی سرباز وظیفه things to say this endless unhappiness there's nothing to say these silent tears of distress, there's nothing to say. These poems, worn out, confused, repetitious, aches that are remediless, there's nothing to say. That I missed someone so much, and still do. A feeling of amorphousness, there's nothing to say. In the night, the heart-stopping creak of your bones, it's the nearness of death they express. There's nothing to say. When there's nowhere to go but away, believe me, with a fistful of words that are substanceless, there's nothing to say. In the autumn, he wouldn't let me love him still. It's February forever, more or less. There's nothing to say. It's cold. The bed and table and plate and the ground is cold. Not a breath of change, nonetheless. There's nothing to say. Sir, I love... No. I can't anymore. I... You. About our broken bodies, I guess, there's nothing to say. The year was 1380-something, whatever it was. Morning filled the diaries, nevertheless. There's nothing to say. It's hard to leave. 
to tear up heart and soul. It's hard, those tears, those shoulders, helplessness. There's nothing to say. Don't ask me where or when this life was lost, a death that has no why or wherefore, that's meaningless. There's nothing to say. چیزهایی برای گفتن این قصه بی انتها گفتن ندارد که این گریه های بی صدا گفتن ندارد که این شعرهای خسته و مقشوش و تکراری این دردهای بی دوا گفتن ندارد که این که دلم تنگ کسی بود و هنوزم هست یک حس بی آب و هوا گفتن ندارد که شب تیک تاک استخانهای نفس گیرد شرح فضایی مرگزا گفتن ندارد که وقتی که راهی جز گذشتن نیست باور کن یک مشت حرف بیهجا گفتن ندارد که نگذاشت این پاییز را هم عاشقش باشم این تا ابد اسفندها گفتن ندارد که سردست تخت و میز و بشقاب و زمین سردست تغییر محسوس دما گفتن ندارد که آقا شما را دوست نه دیگر ندارم من من تو شکستنهای ما گفتن ندارد که سال 1380 و هرچه بود تقویمهای پرعزا گفتن ندارد که سخت است رفتن کندن از جان و دلت سخت است آنگریه ها و شانه ها گفتن ندارد که دیگر نپرس از من کجا کی زندگی گم شد یک مرگ بیچون و چرا گفتن ندارد که Prosecution Pictures don't lie I've grown old and I've forgotten the love I felt when I was 20 You've come too late Papers grown expensive Postmen have had enough Planes mostly crash and no one's else's file will ever be closed. تعقیب عکس ها دروغ نمی گویند من پیر شده ام و عشق 20 سالگی ام را فراموش کرده ام تو دیر کرده ای کاغذ گران شده است پستچی ها افسرده اند هواپیما ها بیشتر می افتند و هیچ پرونده ای دیگر Let's start with things to say. I'm struck first by the title, which is somewhat the opposite of nothing to say. So, Feruza, I'm sure the Persian original gives us a sense of whether that's a pure paradox, but in English it certainly is. The poem is things to say, but it's about nothing to say. What are your thoughts about that paradox? I mean, I think the paradox also exists deliberately in Persian. That's certainly the way I read it. Um, and I think the repetition of nadoratke, you know, is very much, I think, reinforces the sense that there is something to be said and yet 
there's an insistence of the nothingness that the poet is feeling through this through this verse and through this experience that is being expressed here. Uh, like a very literal translation of the title could be or things for saying and then the and the verse that's repeated or the part of the verse that's repeated could also be translated as um, it goes without saying so there are these things it goes without saying. for saying but right. they and don't the need thing to be about said. poetry Leonard is that it assumes that there's no such thing as a thing that goes without saying because the poet is going to say the really hard things Right. Well, I think there's a kind of, I want to coin a phrase and, and describe this as the feminine dismal, this endless unhappiness, there's nothing to say. And that that lyric persona of the feminine dismal is highly political if one takes the world as constituted by the male and then rejects it. There's nothing to say about it. Might mean I can't speak about it. Or might mean it's not worth talking about. Might mean I've been silenced by it. So one of the things I've been admiring about this poem and this book in general is its absolute lyric individuation with the implication of a political circumstance. And this is, it. of the three poems, this is, well, prosecution is also very overtly political, but this one actually mentions the Green Revolution. So, Farouza, can you help us connect the the love that can't anymore be said to the political situation? Big, big question, but... I mean, Get us started on that. Well, I mean, I think certainly um, I, I, I was actually struck by something that I'm going to talk about, this notion of repetition, the fact that this is a, a, a state of existence that, in fact, has happened again and again and again. And I'm very much struck by that. The structure of the poem, the language of the poem reinforces this idea almost of, of political repression on the one hand, and also this feeling of personal rejection. Yeah, I think there's that repetition and, and ritual of repetition, but the poem also has the line, the year was 1380-something, and the footnote from Translator Davis tells us that's uh, 1388, equivalent to 2009 in the Western calendar. So, so I, Al, I think you're right. There is an address to a specific political uprising in 2009 that maybe is veiled or concealed mm -hmm. by the ritual of repetition or the sense of an eternal return of a certain problem. But nonetheless, it does that have that specificity of But of not until the end, though. Not yeah. until the end. And I not think that that's why the repetition is very important, because it's, it's, in my view, it's very suggestive of a recurrent problem, of a recurrent theme that comes to the fore in the poet's life in 2009 or in 1380. And what's very interesting, too, is that in the Persian, it's so, Salah Hezaroshi Sado Hashtodo Hachabud. So it literally, so the year of um, 1380 and whatever it was. Davis intensifies that by translating it twice, 1380-something yeah. and whatever it was, yeah. highlighting, I love that line, by the way. I'm sorry, Machiar, I interrupted you. But, no, no, uh, yeah. Highlighted by, highlighting the exhaustion, these poems worn out, confused, repetitious. No one's really going to say who was affected as she was personally by the 2009 events, whatever year that was. No, that's part of the amazing exhaustion. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. That this, so this, and it goes along with this theme of things that, that um, things that, that there's nothing to say, the things that can't be said. And this idea that maybe this is something that is forgotten about and it's being, um, repressed in a way. If there is a, Leonard, you think a lot about this in your work and in your interviews, and, I, and the new book sounds like it's taking this question up, so 
perfect question for you, but is there a poetics particularly of political exile or of, I mean, in this poem, do we see, and we're only, you and I are dealing only with the English translation, so our colleagues can help us with this, but is there a particular poetics down to the level of the line? I mean, I think of the line, sir, I love, no, exactly. I can't anymore, that- dash, I, you, that's much more fragmented than the rest of the poetry we get from this poet. Indeed, Thoughts it, on that? That was the line I was going to comment on because it doubles what was going on in the 1380-something line, right? Where the confidence of the phrasing, potentially the hyperbole of the lyric statement becomes is interrupted as the poet doubles back and cannot complete what might be a formula or might be a, a cheerful uh, formulaic kind of sense. Sir, I love... No. I can't anymore. We're going to switch to one of the other poems, but I thought this is such a important poem. Why don't we go around really quickly and add one more thought each to this poem? Machiar, you want to start? I think so. The 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 sir is also a really important word. It's, it's like who is this sir? And that's this has it's a very polyvalent word. This sir can mean many things. That's, and in Persian, in Persian, it's also it's in so the word in Persian it can be used in many different ways and. Uh, in familial contexts and older, and, uh, historically, it's also been used as a word for like a, a father or a grandfather in more traditional families. Now there are other more modern concepts of uh, like. Uh, so who's being addressed? Who's I think being she's addressed? making it clear that it's not a lover. It's, a, it's not a lover. It's a, and, and it's using the formal form of address. Uh, and so is this patriarchy? Is it the government? It can lend itself to many different form, forms of interpretation. And then at coming up with I love mm-hmm. after that formal address. That's a real either a confession or a resistance, a, a woman's resistance. Okay, final thought on this poem, Farooza? Um, I mean, I'm also, by a very short phrase, I love it, where she says, believe me. So she's saying, you know, she um, says there's nowhere to go. But I, that one small phrase, believe me, it's almost sort of like, you know, uh, imploring the reader to go along with her, to understand, to trust, to trust the experience that's being described here. And that, I think, is the first passage in the journey of having the reader, the listener, um, kind of go along with the poet and understand this experience experience of, on the one hand, nothingness, but the rupture, the, the sort of the, the, the deliberateness of wanting to make a change and going a different path or choosing a different path. Fantastic. Thank you. Leonard? Yeah, I, I think I would say that uh, the feminine dismal is also uh, a mask, not not all that's going on in the poem, right? That there is, you know, in some of the other poems, a kind of almost transgressive female desire, not the, not the woman is desire, but the woman is desiring. And here that is suggested or hinted at, and you get the bare statement of what Martin Buber calls I-U, the I-U relationship, let's say, in that line. And so there's still the suggestion of some possible spark or glimmer or possibility of speech uh, that exists behind the, the, the rhetoric of the broken body and the rhetoric and reality of, of uh, charged political circumstance. Thank you. That leads to uh, my final thought in this poem, which is after that great hesitant line, the line that's so much about nothing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, we get the reference to the broken bodies, our broken bodies, our broken bodies. So there's a collectivity, a na- presumably a national cultural collectivity. But notice that the broken line, the broken poetics caused by this ex- this impending exile um, causes a reference to the broken bodies. So love is impossible if 
if our language or linguistic culture is being threatened, you know, it's going to have an effect on the body. Yeah. Actually, can I, if I can add yes, one please. more thing. I think the, what, you, what you just said about this national culture is very interesting because the, in the so in the translation is the morning morning filled the diaries, but it can also be translated as so the the the, the calendars filled with mourning, uh, which is really? an allusion to Shiism, and because in Iran there are a lot of uh, holidays in the calendar, and these are. Uh, different days marking d- the martyrdom of different saints, and uh, and then this is a this this could be interpreted as an allusion to Shiism, and then that allusion to Shiism and martyrdom is also profound because it it, it also resonates on a historical level if one thinks about the the Iran Iraq War and there's this history of martyrdom in contemporary Iran. Wow! So Dick Davis chose a somewhat more secular way of translating it. I mean, the way you more literally translated, it might have required another footnote Mm. for one thing. Um, Well, that's great. I'm sure we'll come back to the gist of that poem, but let's turn to W for War One. It's a much shorter poem. Can I ask, this is, I'm ignorant of the language here, but can I ask how the first person singular, where that appears in the line? I heard it at the end. It's in the fifth line. It appears once and then later on, Five lines later, because in Persian the, the the personal pronouns don't need to be used. Mm-hmm. The forms of conjugation imply the, the the person, like in Spanish. So poetry is there's greater power to the poet of ambiguity because she doesn't have to use the pronouns so often. Am I wrong about that? It, I'm not sure if it's ambiguity because it's still clear who it is. Usually, it's clear who if it what from the conjugation of the the verb, it's clear which person it is. So Davis had an option to write, I wasn't a helmet, wasn't a boot, wasn't a mortar shell, wasn't a tank, without all those eyes. Hmm. It's interesting, I mean, because we have Pound, who was so attracted to the Chinese language, which doesn't need pronouns either, and his solution was the participle, an ING, to eliminate the I, uh, the necessity for the substance or mm. selfhood of the mm. I. So this couldn't, or always saying it could have been, uh, well, here you wouldn't even need a participle. You're saying wasn't a helmet, wasn't a boot, wasn't a mortar shell. But so much of the mm. poignancy of this is, it's I who was not any of this. I was not any of these mm. objects. So maybe we need the I. Mm. And in Persian, colloquially, it, it's commonly left out. So it's not leaving it out is not a very uh, specifically poetic. Sp- yeah. So it, it's it, it's a very common usage of the language to leave mm-hmm. it out. Mm-hmm. I think uh, that colloquial makes a lot of sense, that it's a more sort of um, familiar, informal, but also readily accessible experience so that anyone, you know, experiencing the war, for example, could immediately relate to it and identify with it. By leaving, so you're saying by leaving the, the man or the, 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 the eye out in the Persian, it makes it more, more relatable to different readers. That's an excellent point. I think so. I think so. This poem, like the other one, is often about a negative, right? So there are things that, there are lacks. It's interesting to have a speaker of a poem mostly say what she's not. Mm -hmm. Can someone speak to that? I think what it does, it kind of, it's this buildup. So what what she's not or he or I, what is not, and then what at the, at the end, then we get what is, and then that's this. So there's this build up to this very violent image, and that that's it's just it's like this sort of no pun intended, but like this bomb that there this this very violent graphic image. And the, the lines grow longer. Yeah, 
Uh, but also, I think there's some um, tendency in some Persian literature to use negatives in order to describe something. So, you know, like I remember in, 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 in philosophy discourses, for example, to you know try to assert the existence of God, you sort of say what God is not. You know, what is God? God is not a table. You know, so using that sort of negative in many ways reinforces. Um, it gets you closer to. So is this a the, rhetorical convention? I, you know, I hesitate to say rhetorical convention, but I do think it's not unheard of. You know, um, as as a literary device. You know, yeah. it's actually not uncommon. Mm. Leonard, yeah. what? So uh, Machiar described it, I think, appropriately, poetically and thematically, as a bomb that hits us at the end. Can you say this is both a simple question and a hard one? Can you say what it is that she is at the end? Yeah, well, I want to say that, you know, I think Eric Selland has the book Languages of Unsaying, in which he talks about Sufism and other forms of uh, Islamic mysticism, which you say you what cannot be said, and that the form of negation or not is what articulates the, the possibility of what is surreptitiously there or possibly there. Uh, Emily Dickinson puts it, um, tell it slant. Now, tell it all, but tell it slant. Success and circuit lies. So this that is a very quality. Dickinsonian poem, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I thought of Dickinson a lot while yeah. I was reading uh, yeah. while I was reading Shams. Um, in terms of the... Agreed, the, actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. But... Um, so what is the... That was good, mm -hmm. but my question yeah, was, question. what, what, uh, <laughs> respond. what happens at the end? You. Start, you start yeah. and, we'll, and the rest of us well, will finish. I don't want to overdetermine in a certain way, but I want to shift from uh, uh, feminine to feminist and say this is a kind of feminine. I had a kind of feminist reading of it in that the space of the battlefield, the space of war is male, determined by, by the male, and the female is the person, first person pronoun I is relegated to a photograph in the left-hand breast pocket of someone who has died. So that's relegated, but it's also central because it's over the heart and given as a reason why this maybe guy's gone to war. Yeah. So the easiest sort of the place you start is a soldier brings the photo of his wife or loved one with him and that's what's left of him. That's the easy thing. So where do we go from there? I mean, you've already started us, but Machir, what are your thoughts about this? I was that photograph. Well, that's so, and I, I hope you'll forgive me. I hope you don't mind. I keep going to the Persian or the, in the original, so that it, it forgive you. <laughs> Please do. So uh, uh, on the last line, it says, "So on the the warm blood of the heart of the conscript." So this, there's that blood. So it's even more graphic in the Persian. It's and, a recent shooting, a recent yeah, death. Yeah, it's warm blood. And it's this, and, and the, the, the way this, that, that sounds, and, and listeners can, read to the, can listen to the, 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 the Persian, and it's just this very... Um, can you do it for us? Yeah, so... Uh, it says this, uh, there's this internal rhyme in that line and it's just it, they're all very kind of these hard sounds. The way that like like khune, garme, garbe. It's just it's these are uh, they sound almost iambic, a beating heart. Yeah, and the sarbaze vazife is this so this conscript. It's the soldier of so like a literal, very literal translation could be like. I mean, it is a conscript, but in, uh, it's the soldier of uh, duty. Like so, vazife means like I mean duty. There's that allusion to the. Soldiers the mandatoriness being of having had to serve in a way. Yes, exactly. You know, like why conscript? Yeah. yeah, deliberateness. I mean, I mean, the sort of the forced nature yeah. of service. 
That know, service and duty means this, going into the battlefield and dying. Yeah. So, the, so Leonard opened the door to this question of where the eye is. And, of course, we're thinking this is a home front poem, right, because she's not there. But in the end, she is there because she went with him to war. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to comment on that? Home front poems some, sometimes unintentionally reinforce the divide of men and women in war. But this strikes me as an attempt to cross... You know, I didn't really – I mean, it's funny because when you were talking about the sort of the feminist read, mm. obviously I think that's the, the first image that comes to mind. But I also was able to go beyond that um, in my reading and I really saw it as it could have been a younger brother. It could have been a yeah. teacher. It could have been um, – the whole issue I think here um, about this this poem in my view is that it's about how – the the war destroyed these beautiful loves and these beautiful connections and these beautiful human interactions. Um, and it's encapsulated by the slow sort of permeation of this poem with blood. I wasn't a helmet. I wasn't a boot. I wasn't a mortar shell. I wasn't a tank. I wasn't a commander. I wasn't a soldier, a minefield, barbed wire, an embankment, not me. I was a bit of a photograph, small, with no corners, in the left-hand breast pocket, over the smashed heart of a conscript. Kolakhud nabudam, Putin nabudam, Khumpare nabudam, Tank nabudam man. فرمانده نبودم، سرباز نبودم، میدان مین، سیم خاردار، خاکریز نبودم من. یک تکه عکس کوچک و بیگوشه بودم، در جیب سمت چپ از بالا، روی خون گرم قلب متلاشی سرباز وظیفه. Let's turn to prosecution, which is a very lyrical poem, but it also has to do with the situation of the tyrannical state. Machir, do you want to start on this one? Um, the, it sounds like from what you said, the um, Persian could not, doesn't necessarily translate to prosecution. It's other things too, yes? Yeah, so taqib can mean like following, isn't like following someone. So it could be suggestive of mm, like surveillance and surveillance. the state following someone, right. what their actions, what they're, what they're up to. Prosecution in English strikes us more as a, an actual case. Yeah, which I think then it kind of ties into the last line. That, 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 there is a case. That, 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 yeah. The, 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 no one's, and no one else's file will ever be closed. So the title in the English kind of ties into that last line. Yeah. Feruza, who might be the you who's come too late? And I've forgotten the love I felt when I was 20. You've come too late. Is that a lover? It, it's, well, that's the obvious reading. Um, but it could also be justice. You know, mm-hmm. justice has come too late, you know. Leonard, I really like papers grown expensive. Postmen have had enough. Yes. That's <laughs> such, it's almost comic, like... I'm tired of writing letters. I, I guess that's the, what, the letters you write when you're not in your home country, you're writing back home. And if you send it airmail. lovers or to justice. And if you send it airmail, it's going to crash, according to the poem, because planes, right. planes mostly crash. Things conspire <laughs> to keep you from... Uh, 
from all these. You things. know, I did want to point out the last poem we discussed ends with, a, I was a bit of a photograph, and this poem begins, pictures don't lie, that there is a kind of confidence or faith in the image mm. uh, that runs through these poems and in this book that uh, uh, that is interesting just to note, right, that there's a the relationship to the image. Let's go around and say one thing each about this poem. So, Machiart, you want to start? Well, I think I was just thinking about what you two were talking about, the, the mailman or the postman. And, and so in, and in the Persian, it's the, the, the mailmen are depressed. and uh, Have had enough is a great, had enough, it's yeah. a great free <laughs> translation. I love it. And it's, I think this, so the, the paper has grown expensive. Postmen have had enough, which makes one thing. So in this day and age, too, people are using email a lot more. And then, then this title of taqib, like being followed, prosecution. And um, so it makes one think about surveillance, uh, electronic surveillance, emails being read too, that, that there's that uh, in the background. Mm. Feruza, a thought on this poem? My thought was why, why insist that pictures don't lie? I mm. think that that was when I first began reading this poem, I was bothered by that line because I think that pictures do lie. Um, and But that's the irony of it. Then I realized that mm -hmm. that was the irony of what was being said here, uh, mm. was was the sort of the, the superficial um, appearance of things and how that becomes politicized, sort of. Well, if you have a case file, you know, if the intelligence cadres have a file on you, probably the file's going to include photos of you at the rally at the protest, you know, so pictures don't lie. So it's almost a prosecutorial move and it has exactly. that irony. Yeah, it exactly. has that irony. Mm -hmm. That last line, and no one else's file will ever be closed, is on the one hand conjures up the, the, the surveillance state in all its horror and on the other hand suggests our transgressive acts never come to an end because our file never gets closed. Mm -hmm. It means whatever we're doing doesn't end or doesn't die because someone has to keep keep a file on it forever and ever. So there's a kind of hidden, a hidden defiance to that line. And I'll just say that um, the last line for me is evidence of this poet's sheer talent because to end a poem on the word closed that is this open-ended there's thematically, it's open-ended. The, the, the persecution, prosecution, and surveillance will go on, uh, but also poetically open-ended. Um, before we go around for final, final thoughts, I just want to ask Dick Davis, um, can you sense what he's trying to, is there a mode or a emphasis in the way he's done the translation? Is he tending less toward trans... Uh, literal translation and more toward poetic translation. What can you characterize the translation? I think it is m closer to a poetic translation. Absolutely. Yeah. And also one in which I think, um, I mean, this is the the poetry of of Dr. Shams is I think typical of a lot of contemporary Persian poetry in the sense that it. it um, you know, it rejects strict form. It rejects, mm. uh, you know, flowery language. Mm -hmm. um, it is economical, as you say. I think that's in word choice and, and in imagery um, and in colloquialism. And I think that um, Dick Davis does a very good job of, of you know, rendering that colloquial or this accessible um, feel of the, of the poem um, in English. 
I just add on the translation reading the introduction that Davis makes clear the, transla the translations are all a dialogue, a dialogue between himself and the poet, Shams, that he's passing that they his draft, they collaborate on it. Yes, so because she's of involved. course her English is very, very yeah. good. Yeah. Well, the four of us could talk for a long time because we like this poetry so much, uh, but why don't we end with some final thoughts? So who wants to go first? Final thought, Mahyar, you always look like you're ready. Well, I think that these words by... Fatima Shams, they are also brave words because they, they are also a form of activism and they have led to her exile and she's living in a situation where she can't go back to Iran and these are, um, it takes courage to write these words. Perfect. Firuza, final thought? I mean, my final thoughts really are that, um, you know, for me, the, the poetry reflects um, a state of being both um, for those in exile, like Dr. Shams, but others as well um, in the broader Middle East at this particular moment in time. And I sort of want to emphasize that quality of universality, um, that, you know, you don't have to be an Iranian or an Iranian-American to read it and really um, relate to the themes being discussed here. Thank you. Yeah, Leonard. I would say as well that this interesting discussion, maybe even disagreement, but discussion about the relationship between the particular and the universal uh, in a poem or in the poem specifically and particularly of Fatima Shams is is interesting and says something very powerful about the poems that it places, in that, places us in that space between the particular and the universal. And one could go in the direction of the image qua particular or the universal qua human condition. Uh, what we didn't speak of and you just addressed is so importantly is there is a subtext of, of the refugee of not just exile, but specifically refugee that may not describe her circumstance specifically in terms of Syrian refugees and so on, but nonetheless is very timely and very crucial in terms of its address uh, to, to that circumstance. So my final thought follows from all three of you, actually. Um, prosecution in particular, I think, does exactly what Feroza says this poetry generally is doing at this particular moment. How could she know? She wrote these a couple of years ago. There's this dread, this constant dread, wake up in the morning, every morning dread, that prosecution, that sense that your file will never be closed. There's, and I think this, the pressure on memory and on exactitude in a state like that, so, you know, the year was 1380-something, whatever it was. Well, we know that if you've been through it, suffered through a traumatic political upheaval that you're never going to forget the details of it. But that's a poem called Things to Say, and she's got something to say. And one of the things she's got to say is our memories are hard-pressed, trauma causes forgetting, and poetry is a way of unforgetting what you've forgotten. And healing. And healing. So it's not whatever it was, oh, she's fuzzy about 2009. It's that the process of remembering is going, you, you don't instantly remember. You have to work through it to the point where you reassemble what it was that happened to you. And the poem is the things to say. These are, I have something to say. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world or the literary world at large. So who wants to gather some paradise first? Leonard. 
Well, I could start by recommending a, a book by Zora Saeed, who's an Afghan-American uh, writer who we know uh, in common, as some of us. She had published a book just recently entitled Langston Hughes, Poems, Photos, and Notebooks from Turkestan. It was published by CUNY Lost and Found. And what she does in that book is go back to document. Langston Hughes was in Turkestan in the 1930s as a guest of the Soviets and uh, jumped off the train so he wouldn't have his minders around and wandered around in what was then called Turkestan on his own, meeting a lot of Uzbek language poets and writers that no one knew anything about the meeting of or influence on Hughes up until Zora Said was doing research at the Schomburg, looked on a file on Langston Hughes called Soviet Union Russia. Out of it falls these poems and texts in Uzbek in a version of Uzbek, older version of Uzbek. Her grandfather had taught her and spoken to her in. She's one of the last few people, I guess, who can read that. And, on the, and uh, she put together this extraordinary book about the interactions between Langston, Langston Hughes and and uh, Central Asian poets uh, from from the 30s. So it's called Langston Hughes: Poems, Photos, and Notebooks from Turkestan, published by CUNY Lost and Found. Wow, a great gathering paradise, Mahir. How are you going to top that? Uh, I don't think I can top that, but <laughs> I bet you can actually. What's going on in Iranian cinema? There, there are, there's one film that comes to mind that it's a, it's a few years old. It's not recent. It's from 2000, I believe, 13. Uh, or, and it, it's, but it's a film that hasn't been distributed widely in the West at all. Uh, it's called Facing Mirrors. And it is a film that deals with uh, transgenderism in Iranian society and explores the issues in the private and the public sphere in a way that I was thinking about that film because these poems also delve into the private and the, and the, and the public. And, and that's a film I love, and it's just a film I've been teaching it in my cinema class, and it's, you know, we've been discussing the fact that this is a film that's not distributed in the West. Why? It's, it's such a great film, and it deserves to be distributed. And uh, it's available, as far as I know, the only place it's available is on uh, it's this website called imvbox.com. That, that's the only place that's distributed, it, where it's distributed in the West. Great, great recommendation. Say the name of the film it's again. It's called Facing Mirrors. It's Facing by Mirrors. Negar Azerbaijani. She's the director. Fantastic. Feruza, recommend something for us. Yes, I'd like to recommend a new collection of uh, poems by um, an interesting young poet named Solmaz Sharif. She is of Iranian descent, Iranian heritage, um, writer and poet, and she was born in Istanbul, so there's that nice little mix. Um, and her new uh, collection of poetry was just recently published in 2016. And it, it too, um, gets its imp- inspiration from um, war, conflict, uh, some of the current conflicts. And I think it's interesting because it's more of a not specifically Iranian-American experience, although there is some of that, but more of a general Middle Eastern American experience in this moment in time in the history of this country. Um, and so it's a very uh, clever um, collection, and I'd like to recommend it. I believe it was also nominated for a National Book Award this year. And say again the name, um, the title? Look. Look. Easy enough. Um, my recommendations, my gathering paradise follows exactly from Feruza's. First of all, I'd like to recommend that people go to the website of the Kelly Writers House and just type in the search box there, Iranian American Women Writers, I think is the title, or maybe Fiction Writers. So Feruza organized a panel 
uh, of uh, Iranian-American women writers. And it's worth the, the videos available and the audio is available. And it includes some of your own reading, and I highly recommend it. I'd also like to re recommend Feruza's novel of 2010, Martyrdom Street, which I mentioned at the beginning. And then there's a Leonard recommendation, which is a book that I have at home. Uh, and I'm very happy exists in the world. Um, it's edited by our Leonard Schwartz. It's called Benjamin Fondaine, and it's subtitled Cinepoems and Others, and it's put out by New York Review of Books Press. Again, Benjamin Fondaine, F-O-N-D-A-N-E. So congrats on having that out in the world. Well, that's all the files that will never be closed we have time for on Poem Talk today. <laughs> Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Mahyar Antazari, Leonard Schwartz, and Faruza Kashani Sabet, and to Poem Talk's director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing, remarkable, talented, ridiculously talented Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, Zach and I will once again be taking Poem Talk on the road back to the Woodbury Poetry Room at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Kate Colby, Matt Vajankelevich, and Christina Davis will join me to talk about Anne Lauterbach's prose poem, Alice in October. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. This is Al Filry's Poem Talks producer and host. Zach and I and the rest of the Poem Talk team here at the Kelly Writers House hope you enjoyed this new episode. We wanted to add a special word of thanks here at the end to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, whose generous grant supporting Poem Talk, among other outreach projects, has helped make this episode possible. Thank you so much to the Lights, and thanks to our regular and intermittent listeners, one and all. We'll see you again in a month with another new episode of Poem Talk.